Guys, it is so good to see your faces. Um, this is a very bizarre thing to be preaching uh, to a mostly empty room, but it is it is really sweet to worship with you. And uh, we are expectant for, for God to be working as we uh, open his word together. So um, about 12 years ago, um, I better start a timer here. <laughs> About 12 years ago, uh, God totally rearranged my life so that it would literally never look the same. I was on a career path uh, playing music and as a, a dream uh, and, and something I worked at for about a decade. And then Jesus showed up and everything changed completely. Uh, and this is, in fact, exactly what happens when Jesus calls men. He calls us to come and die. He calls us to new life in him. And if we're going to have new life, we, the old man has to die. He taught that the old life must go to the cross, to every passion, every dream, so that the dying sinner can find life in him. And even still, one year went by, five years went by, ten, and day by day, I find it so easy to fall back into the same patterns that I used to walk in. Um, life generally looks different since that day, but there, there still are, are times where I feel like I'm just walking through the motions. I'm just, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but there's little passion for God. There's little love for him in my keeping of his commands. Maybe this is your experience also. Um, it seems as I've been trying to find a new normal <laughs> during this time of COVID-19, that the Holy Spirit has been highlighting. He's put a spotlight on my heart and is showing me the areas where I am not completely submitted to him, <laughs> where I'm not letting him create my new normal, but but I'm... I've created a little system for myself that I want to walk in and I don't want him to disrupt. This text challenged me greatly this week. And, and I believe that it shows us one of the reasons why we so easily slip into some of the same patterns that we used to live in. And I, I believe that it has something for you also today. So if you're going to take notes, here's a, a short outline. We're going to go from, uh, yeah, just, just to, from verse 33 to 39. We're going to start in verse 33, seeing the Pharisees' question about Jesus's, uh, about fasting. And then 34 and 35, we'll see Jesus' response to the question. And then 36 to 39, Jesus will share a parable uh, and give, give some meaning. So let's go ahead and jump right in to verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So when you're reading your Bible and you come to places where you're not actually sure who they're talking about or, or what's going on in the story, it's so important that you look to context. You, you need to understand what's going around, on around that text. So right here we have these two words, and they and they. Those two words are connecting us back to the previous passages where the scribes and Pharisees 
have an issue with Jesus's behavior. Not only is Jesus hanging out with the quote unquote sinners. Now Jesus is not living the religious life that the leaders of that day were expecting him to live. There's, they have a problem with him. Everyone else is fasting, but Jesus seems to be a hedonist. He and his disciples are eating and drinking. Fasting was common in the time of Jesus, not only for corporate fasting, but also what the Pharisees had developed, which was two days a week where they would fast Mondays and Thursdays in intercession for the nation. And so you can actually observe this in Luke 18, 12, where the Pharisee prays to God, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Luke 18, 12. So fasting is common and Jesus is not forbidding fasting. He's not against fasting. We know that from Luke chapter four, he fasts in a very intense way. But in this moment, he and his disciples had a reason not to be fasting. They had a reason to not be fasting and the Pharisees wanted to know why. This is not friendly questioning either. They're not coming just like, hey, what are you doing? And we're kind of curious. No, these, these guys were upset because Jesus had enormous crowds following him because he's a miracle worker and he has this teaching that, ha- that comes with authority and power. And as they're watching this guy who's got all this authority, they realize that their power is being threatened. Some historical context is helpful to understand these leaders and understand their behavior here. So if you look back at Israel's history, you'll find that after the exile to Babylon, Israel swung from a lifestyle of licentious behavior, the thing that almost got them completely destroyed, over to a lifestyle that was very legalistic, which is equally, if not more, deadly. So in an effort to keep Israel from breaking the 613 laws that were marked out in the Torah, the law of God, Israel's leaders began to interpret those laws and even add laws on top of laws on top of laws so that the people would not come even close to breaking God's law. What they were doing is they were expanding the law. They're adding to it and they were demanding that everyone adhere not only to God's law, but also to their traditions. Now, we do this in daily life, in our Christian life. Let me give you an example from a time in my early 20s. I was a young, maturing Christian and I struggled a lot with vanity. And, you know, I I thought if I just eliminate the problem, if I just stop looking in the mirror, then maybe, maybe I won't be so vain. But it seemed like daily, maybe even worse, I found myself struggling with the exact same vain, uh, exact same vain feelings from my heart. And I, I couldn't understand it uh, until a mentor came to me and helped me see where my problem lied. He said, 
he basically showed me that I had started to put my faith in my ability to not look in the mirror more than I was putting my faith in the God who is able to kill sin, the God who is able to get into our hearts, expose it and deliver us from those sins. Now, fences can be helpful in the fight against sin. They can, but they can also subtly create an illusion that you don't need God anymore to keep his commands that you don't need God anymore to keep you from sinning. And eventually, if you keep on this path, it causes you to harden your heart and your eyes no longer see your sin. You begin to feel like you're practically perfect. This was me in my early childhood. I grew up in a, a home that, in, in a church that tended towards this sort of legalism. So you begin to inch towards a salvation by works, Reaching heaven or keeping your land like Israel wanted to do then has little to do with God and a lot to do with me, myself, and I. It's a very dangerous thing. And the Pharisees were beginning to believe that if they kept the nation from sinning by enforcing these laws, that laws and their traditions, then God would have to bless them. They would get what they wanted. But eventually fasting and prayer becomes Not a cry for the Messiah to come and save us from our sin, but instead a way for us to mark our little checklist and even prove to God that we are righteous, that we're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing. Their hearts were growing proud and slower, slowly moving further and further away from God, away from relationship with God. Sin was festering in their hearts while they whitewashed the outside and called others to do the same. Let's look at Jesus's response, verse 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then, then they will fast in those days. What is Jesus saying? So Jesus here is asking a rhetorical question, which with the obvious answer, no, this is not a fitting time to fast. Yes, it's fitting to fast when you're waiting on the Messiah to come, when you realize that your people are sinning and that it's causing exile. Yes, it's right to fast when there's brokenness and death and sin everywhere. Jesus acknowledges that, and he even says that there's coming a time, he's prophesying about a time after this, that it would be again appropriate to fast. But right now is not the time for fasting. This was something worth celebrating. A time had come that was worth celebrating. So a few months back, we celebrated Joel and Carly's wedding. It was such a sweet day. Uh, I don't know if, if you know, if you know, Joel, Joel and Carly, members of our church, and they had a nice spread of food and it was a great celebration, family, friends. It was awesome. Imagine me there refusing to fast that day. I'm sorry, to, to feast with everyone that day. And in fact, I'm, I'm looking around at the other pastors and I'm scowling at them because we had agreed that Tuesdays or Saturdays, whatever the day was, that Saturdays were going to be our fast day. That would be so unfitting, right? That would just be 
sick. It would be a disgrace to Joel and to Carly and to their family who had hosted this party to celebrate their union. It wouldn't make any sense. And Jesus is living at a time where the same principle was, was applied. It was actually forbidden to fast. One of their many traditions and rules was you can't fast during weddings. That's not, that's a no-go. So Jesus here, he's comparing, he's making a comparison. And he's saying in the same way that you would not fast then, my presence demands that you don't fast, but you feast. It's a different time. Everything has changed. His presence makes fasting totally inappropriate. His presence gave reason for joy, not mourning. He's saying, don't you see? Don't you understand the times that are here? It's time for rejoicing. Jesus is comparing himself to a bridegroom. What what is this about? I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Isaiah 62. Isaiah chapter 62. And I want to read a a little bit larger chunk where Isaiah prophesies that there was coming a day when Israel would be saved and, and it would be he would be saved, She would be saved by this bridegroom. Who is the bridegroom? The metaphor is connected. The metaphor of the bridegroom is connected to none other than God himself. It was God who was going to come and rescue the bride. Let's read starting in verse four. No longer will they call you deserted or your name or or name your land desolate, but you will be called. My delight is in her. Or Hephzibah and your land Beulah, which means married for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married as a young man marries a young woman. So will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isaiah was prophesying the day when the adulterous Israel would be rescued by the bridegroom who is God. The bridegroom was coming. And this church was the day. This was the day. Jesus is claiming Jesus is comparing himself to the bridegroom king, the one who's come to save his bride like the prophets had foretold. This was obviously not a time for fasting. It's a time for joy. This is everything that we need. Everything that Israel need was for the Messiah to come and rescue us from our sins so that we would no longer be called by these names of desertion. but We would be called married. We would be called God's. God's bride. The Pharisees, however, couldn't see beyond the fact that their rules were being broken and their power was challenged. Not everyone was rejoicing. Let's continue in verse 36, where Jesus continues his response in parable form. This is historically one of the hardest passages. I've wrestled with it so much. But verse 36, let's read through it together. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a garment from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. So there's a lot of moving parts here, and I want to try to unpack this for you. Um, what Jesus is doing is he, he's, he's stacking some metaphors. So there's two metaphors here that have the same meaning, and that is that the old cannot mix with the new. And then Jesus offers a challenge in verse 39. So let me, let me break that down. The first metaphor is talking, it's using a old and a new garment, old and new. This language of old and new is, is constant in this, in this section. Now imagine I have, let me just kind of bring this into real life. I have an old pair of jeans. It needs, it's got a, a, a rip in the knee and I need to re- repair it. You would think it totally silly Stupid. If I go out and buy a new pair of jeans and cut out a piece of that jean and put it on to the new for two reasons. One, it's going to wreck the new pair of jeans. And two, the old pair that you've replaced, it's not going to match. And eventually it's going to rip away as that new garment begins to shrink. It's going to rip away from the old. It's all around unfitting. It's not supposed to go together. The old and the new are not supposed to mix. The second metaphor is a little bit more complicated because we're not familiar with uh, first century wineries. But here, and, and I, would, I would say, this is where a good commentary or, or book on historical context is, is helpful. If you want to do some more digging, there's, we can help you with some resources. But Jesus here is saying a similar thing. In the same way that you wouldn't try to take an old uh, or, or a new garment to, to fix the old, you would not put new wine into old wineskins. Why? Okay. So when new wine was made, they would put the wine into a new fresh skin, like a goat skin or another small animal, a very malleable uh, skin. And, and while that new wine was fermenting, it would be expanding the skin. It needed to be able to expand. However, if you put new wine into an old wine skin, the old wine skin would have been hardened from already being stretched. And what, what you're going to end up with is a burst wine skin and your wine is going to spill all over the ground. The people would have understood his parable well. Basically, you cannot mix the old with the new. It just simply does not work. And it looks silly to the people. That's why he's using these very common life Parables. He's showing them how silly it is. Then he goes to verse 39 and Jesus offers a very striking challenge. Goes along with the second metaphor. He says, no one wants the new wine after they have had the new. They say the old is better. This, I believe that we can understand a little bit more. Anyone that's had a, a bottle of good old wine or that's played a vintage guitar, you know that it's not as good as the new. You pick up that guitar, it plays so much nicer. It's worn in perfectly. That, that old wine, it's so much richer. 
And so we don't want the new when we've tried the old. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that the Pharisees are ultimately going to reject him and say, we don't want you. We want the old. You see, Jesus was bringing in something new. Jesus was bringing a kingdom that was founded on a new covenant promised by the prophets in which faith would be central to justification. Faith would be central to our relationship with God, not obedience to the law. Under the old covenant, favor with God was contingent on how well we kept the commandments. But the law only proved that no one was capable of keeping that standard of holiness. The law even showed us this by giving us substitutionary atonement with with animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice for the people who were obviously going to walk into sin. God made provision for us because he knew we would walk into sin. Israel did. We see it again and again and again in the pages of scripture. So the law had its purpose, but it was never sufficient for, for salvation in and of itself. The point was always to bring us to God. The point was always to lead to faith in God who alone can save. So then why would they reject this new thing that he was bringing? Because it didn't taste good. They couldn't see that it was beautiful because it was going to be a challenge on their authority. It was going to be a challenge on their traditions. It was going to be a challenge to them, period. It was going to be hard. It threatened their power. But what the Pharisees didn't realize is in rejecting what Jesus was bringing, they were actually rejecting God himself. In rejecting Jesus and what he calls us to do, we are rejecting God. Even in our law keeping, sometimes we are rejecting God. Jesus's parable exposes the religious leaders hypocrisy here. Even in their strict rule following, they were not worshiping God, but in fact, their own systems. They had instead twisted, twisted God's law into something that they could control. If you're already righteous on your own, as they believed, then what, do you, what need do you have for God? But Jesus, church, does not give us that option. He does not mix the old with the new. We cannot say, here, Jesus, I have a little bit of my good works and righteousness. I'll add it to to this whole equation. No, he says, Daniel, it's all rubbish. Even your good works, lay them at my feet. Come and die. Everything must bow before King Jesus. He's asking us to choose who we will serve. Who Who will we follow? Who will we marry? Will it be these old Laws, commandments, traditions, whatever we want to cling to, whatever is in that old category, or will we choose to follow Jesus? The bride of Christ must 
be one-minded, one-hearted the Lord. Now, if you're tuning in right now, and you wonder if you've ever surrendered to Jesus in that way, hear the Savior's call. Hear him. He wants you, and he's calling you to new life. He's saying, lay down your old and every perishing thing with it and come and find life. It will cost you everything, but with it, you will gain everything. It will lead you to a cross, but in it, resurrection life. Please come and follow him. And if you are that person, would you please reach out to us so we can talk to you and help you along this journey? For the rest of us who are walking with Jesus, it's easy to look at the Pharisees and scoff right now. But you need to remember that Jesus's challenge is even for us right now. It's not just Pharisees who have a hard time humbling themselves. It's not just Pharisees, but the entire human race. We're all proud. We all want control. We all want the old more than we want the new. We don't like when our lives are disrupted, even by Jesus. Sometimes there's a little bit of Pharisee church in every one of us. There's a little bit of legalist in every single one of us. Let me ask you a question. Where in your life are you trying to make the old compatible with the new? Where in your life are you trying to let it fit with following Jesus? Don't you see that it can't work that way? You don't get to stand at the altar saying your vows to Jesus while simultaneously holding the hand of another behind your back. It's all or nothing with Jesus. Where have you subtly snuffed out relationship with God by trying to have things your way? I feel so convicted. Even before I came up here, I just was thinking about how hypocritical I am. And I just, it's not easy to follow Jesus. Uh, and, I, and I see it in my life. I'm speaking these things to you as somebody who constantly struggles with these, trying to fit my worldview, my normal into following Jesus. I want him to accommodate me. So hear, hear that it's coming from a heart of brokenness and humility here. I was helped by a Christian psychologist, Dr. Ed Welsh, who, uh, in addition to the, the, the expanding of the law that we've been talking about that the Pharisees did, he, he defines legalism as, as also having a category of narrowing the law. It's not, not, not the expanding of the law where we create fences around the things, we don't break it, but, but there's a narrowing of the law where we, where we get, we, we keep the law just enough, just enough so that there's no eyes turning on you, so that your conscience is not too broken. You, you keep the law. You're able to check all the boxes and yet at the heart of it is not love for God. At the heart of it is not a, 
everything for you, Jesus. There's a narrowing of the law. This is another form of deadly legalism. It hinders true, fruitful Christian living. Both of these are deadly. And when I think about you, All People's Church, and when I think about us and the temptations we face in this nation, in this age, I think about how easy it is to to find our normal and to sit in it. I know it by experience. I'm I'm saying that. I know that by experience. And I, I think... This is, this is the strain that we tend towards, that narrowing of the law where we do just enough. Maybe you've had a, recount, a, a radical encounter with Jesus. Maybe you remember and you can, you can give one of the stories that Sam's talking about where Jesus has wrecked and changed your life in the best of ways. But now things have settled down. Christian life feels a lot easier. It feels pretty normal. You read your Bible. You pray. You, you might even share with your coworkers. You, you, you know, you go to church, you've, you've kept yourself pure for marriage. You, you've got all these, these things together. But then Jesus calls you to something a little deeper, a little harder. Right now in our culture, things, it's getting harder to be a Christian. And in those moments, we move back into the corners and we, we want comfort more than we're willing to put ourselves up there, more than we're willing to let others know that we're Christians. We do just enough as long as it doesn't disrupt our comfort. Sam pointed me to a documentary called Sheep Among Wolves. And there the story of, a, of an Iranian Christian couple is, is documented where after a matter of living in America for just, just months, they decided to move back to Iran. And the wife ends up telling her husband, quote, there is a satanic lullaby here. All the Christians are sleepy and I'm feeling sleepy. This is disturbing because what she is saying is that her her faith is more threatened by this lullaby than the persecutions that she experiences and that are prevalent in a nation like Iran. I'm afraid that for many of us, we do just enough not to turn heads. While at the same time, we disobey some of Christ's fundamental commandments of making disciples of praying fervent, fervently for others, of giving generously, of living lives of holiness, of giving of our time and energy and money and all things in the name of Jesus and unto his glory. Please understand me, church. The American dream is not all bad. Comfort is not all bad. I want all of us to live long and healthy lives so long as we're, we're doing it in faithful way unto the Lord Jesus. But all people's church today, Jesus, I believe, is calling us to check our normal, to check our hearts. He's calling us to let him redefine what normal looks like. 
We must submit to him. Right now is the time, I believe, where God is shining a light on the church. He's shining a light on all of our lives, and he's calling us, re-examine. Let my spirit lead you. Let me show you how to live. Let me define your normal. We've all slipped into some of these ruts, and he's calling us to something new. Church, when you spend money, is Jesus at the center of that decision. When you turn on Netflix, is Jesus at the center of the decision in what you watch? Is he at the center of how you use your time, of how you make your plans? Church, what would our church look like if every single one of us every morning got up and said, Lord, what do you have for me? How would you have me reach my neighbors? Who do you want me to pray for? I'm yours. Our church, I think, would look quite a bit different. My life would look quite a bit different. It would be disrupted far more often than it is. I would live in a lot more, a lot less comfort, I believe. And I believe he's calling me to it. What if every one of us were willing to drop everything for a day and go and minister where God told us to minister to? What if God was calling some of us to go overseas right now and minister in crisis places to those that don't have the gospel? Is our heart to say, yes, Jesus, whatever you have. You're the Lord, you're the bridegroom, and I'm your bride, and I will follow. Church, I'm jealous for you. I'm bringing this word that we would be a pure bride on the day of Christ's return. I don't want us to live our lives like the the guy who had the one talent and buried it in the ground. Church, remember the man who buried his talent didn't waste it in sinful living. He didn't squander it like the, the, the prodigal son. No, he built a fence around it so that he could live like he wanted rather than being required to live in faith. And we are so prone to this because we're, we're addicted to comfort in our nation. We're so prone to this because the old just tastes better. We're used to it. We're used to it in the United States of America to have comfort, health, wealth, whatever we want. And it's a lullaby singing us to sleep. Sometimes following Jesus disrupts our lives and it's hard. But we, church, have to repent and say, yes, Lord, I'll go wherever. I'll do whatever you have. I will let you define my normal, I'll let you define my behavior in this world. The reason why Jesus confronts legalists, the reason why he confronts our idolatry today is because it is hindering us from relationship with God. The reason why he convicts our hearts by his spirit is because he wants us. He wants us. Jesus doesn't want us to fall into these categories of legalism where we expand the law or narrow the law, all the while trying to control things and all the while pushing God out. No, Jesus wants fruitful lives for us. And here's the good news. Here's how it's all possible. Jesus came and lived the life that we should have lived in perfect submission to the Father. He never lived for comfort or any other fading thing, 
but he was willing to give everything, his entire life, to be faithful to God. And he did it so that you and I who trust in Jesus might not perish for our sins, but have eternal life in him. He went to the cross and took the punishment that I deserve. And he rose from death and he's seated at the right hand of God. And he poured out his Holy Spirit to empower us for this mission, church. This is the good news. This is why we gather to hear that Jesus has come and he is coming again. And until that day, he's calling us to live holy and godly lives as we hasten the return of the Lord. So I challenge you today, lay down your pride by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lay down your plans and come and follow him. Let him redefine your normal. Let Jesus redefine your normal tonight. Tomorrow morning, everything you do with your time, he has proven to us that he's worthy of following. He's proven to us. So, oh, church, let us be willing to let him disrupt our lives. Again, COVID-19 may just be an opportunity for us to take a look. Maybe God, the Holy Spirit, is shining a light on you like he's shining a light on me. He's calling us to return to our first love and follow him. Let me pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you care about us, that you have come to the earth. Oh, Jesus, you're the bridegroom king. Come to set us free. We would never stand under your law. And yet, God, you fulfilled it perfectly for us in Jesus. And Jesus, now you just call us to look to you. So I pray that we would right now, that we would look to you and that you would deliver us from this evil and twisted generation and that we would see you face to face on the day that you return. And we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.